Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for joining us. Hope you're having a good and safe day. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. We have lots of different things we're going to be talking about on the program today. Uh, The National Cattlemen's Beef Association and some others are very much opposed to what's called the Great American Outdoors Act. This is a proposal kind of making its way through the Senate right now that would basically allow the government to purchase more private land and without a lot of um, oversight into those purchases. And there are those in agriculture, including the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, concerned about that and opposing that. We will talk with the Executive Director of Natural Resources for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about that uh, a little later in the program. Also, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL, FC Stone, will be joining us as we'll be talking about uh, markets, China especially, their, some of their purchases, where they're at on those purchases, and what we might see the rest of the year under Phase 1. And, of course, uh, today a big uh, report day as well, kind of a preview there. And we'll also talk with the first vice president of the National Corn Growers Association. They have released a study with some not very favorable projections for this year uh, when it comes to uh, farm income, uh, kind of breaking it down on a per acre basis. So we will take a look at that, uh, go over those numbers and those projections, certainly a big concern here. And we're seeing more and more of the projections, not only for a tough year this year, but into 2021 as well. So a lot of people very concerned about that. Also, uh, we look at, as the Senate considers whether or not they are going to come up with another assistance package. Um, They are looking at that. We've heard repeatedly that it would be after the 4th of July, so sometime in July if they do something like that. And, um, you know, they look at the HEROES Act that passed in the House, and most feel that's uh, too expensive, and the Republicans would never go for all of that. But there are several provisions within it for agriculture that uh, many ag groups would like to see put into place in some form or package. The American Farm Bureau Federation this week sent the Senate basically their recommendations, a wish list, if you will, for a coronavirus relief bill that would include a new round of aid for farmers. Uh, AFBF calling on Congress to provide farms and other businesses protection from pandemic-related lawsuits. In a four-and-a-half-page letter that was sent to uh, Senate Leader McConnell and Democratic Leader Charles Schumer and leaders of the Senate Ag Committee, And President Zippy Duvall of the American Farm Bureau Federation said the economic losses across the U.S. ag sector are broad-based, directly impacting farmers and ranchers and their supply chain partners from input providers to end users. And he said producers have witnessed their markets shrink overnight or even disappear while supply chains have been stretched to their limit in response to the pandemic. So they are seeking several things, including um, opening acreage enrolled in the CRP for emergency haying and grazing, 
and also several recommendations for easing rules in the Paycheck Protection Program's favorable loans, including allowing farms to get funding for H-2A workers. So uh, some of the recommendations from Farm Bureau to the Senate as they consider whether or not there will be another aid package. All right, we're joined now by Chuck Connor. He is president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. We want to take another look and get more information on this dicamba issue. Chuck, thank you for joining us. I know you, as well as uh, ag retailers, we talked with uh, Darren Kopik yesterday about this. You're seeking more clarification, more answers to questions you have on this dicamba issue. Have you heard anything back from EPA? Uh, Mike, we still haven't gotten a whole lot of clarification, and I appreciate your uh, taking the time to make sure producers are well-educated on this because there's uh, just a lot of unknowns out there. And, you know, ultimately, the ag retailers and the co-ops, we want to make sure that our um, retailers certainly, but as importantly, our farmers are in full compliance with the law here. And, uh, you know, there's just many variables here in terms of the court decision, the EPA order to withdraw, and now kind of these final use dates that we want to be absolutely clear that we're selling, distributing, and ultimately using at the farm level these products in full compliance. And I just don't think we have the full tools of information yet to make those kind of decisions, and that's what we've asked EPA for. I mean, there have been some sudden starts and stops here just in the last few days. What what you could do, what you can't do, what you think you can do with these products and what you can't, and also questions about the future, obviously, of dicamba, but also maybe some other products as well besides these three that are in question now. Well, and that's what's important, Mike, because we are sort of plowing new ground, if you will, in terms of how we handle these transitions. I think, as you know, when uh, products, uh, herbicides and pesticides like this are going through a, a change in status, oftentimes the absolute you know, best use of disposing of those products is, is to indeed use them according to their label rather than, you know, sending them back to a warehouse for some other sort of form of disposal. So it's important we get this one right because there will be future uh, circumstances where this will be a precedent. So you're seeking clarification from EPA. In the meantime, um, you know, kind of in uncharted waters here on on what can be done or can't be done, it, it would seem that confusion Wow, that could lead to some problems down the line. Well, I think the, the biggest point of confusion, um, I, I think when um, EPA does these kind of things, they have a tendency to sort of think about farmers applying pesticides, you know, based upon what they may have uh, sitting there in their tool shed and inventory. And, of course, oftentimes that's not the case. You know, farmers prepay these things at the retailers, but, but never actually uh, take delivery of it until it's time to apply them on the fields. Uh, some farmers still use, you know, sort of the old cash and carry method on these products. And so all of these different ways that farmers do business have come into play here in terms of what can and can't be done with these products. Yeah, and if you're an agribusiness, you're, you're kind of caught in this limbo as well as farmers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, ultimately, Mike, um, our members want to be in compliance with the law. They, they don't want to misstep. Uh, they know these are important issues. The public is watching. The Ninth Circuit uh, Court uh, ruling is watching this. And, and you know, we, we just we want to be make sure that we are doing things absolutely in accordance with the law. And, and these clarifications are 
obviously important guidance for us to, to make sure we are doing that. But as of yet, no clarification, any further clarification from EPA then? Not at this point. Okay. All right. Well, hopefully you'll get that soon, and we'll be, uh, be able to pass that along. Chuck, as always, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Chuck Connor, president of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. We continue to wait for further clarification on the dicamba issue from EPA. Up next, Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, why NCBA is opposed to the Great American Outdoors Act. We'll tell you all about it next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association, American Sheep Industry Association, the Public Lands Council, and other affiliate organizations are opposing the Great American Outdoors Act. Here to tell us about it is Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of Natural Resources for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Caitlin, thank you for joining us. First, tell us, what is the Great American Outdoors Act? Well, good morning, Mike. Thanks for talking to me this morning. So the Great American Outdoors Act is the latest compilation of two different bills. One part of the bill provides uh, mandatory funding, uh, up to $9.5 billion over five years, to address deferred maintenance, the maintenance that's left over at the end of the year uh, at land management agencies. We know that deferred maintenance is a problem, uh, and, and so that's one part of the bill, <clears throat> the one problem the bill seeks to address. The other part of the bill, though, uh, is, is what makes the, the front half such a problem. The second half of the bill uh, makes uh, changes Congress's role in, in the way uh, the federal agencies acquire land and how they uh, prioritize land. And in fact, it, it makes that funding mandatory. And so 40% of what's allocated there, or $360 million a year, will just be for federal land acquisition. Acquisition of, of land, and would there be any oversight or any, what would the process be, or would they just be able to make those purchases? Well, and so that's the problem, Mike. So up until now, Congress had a very specific role. Uh, the agencies would come to Congress and say, these are the lands we want to buy. These are the lands we want to buy in what order. And Congress would say through the appropriations process uh, that those lands were approved and how much money could be spent. Uh, and this bill seeks to change that process. Uh, if this bill is to be enacted, Congress will, will no longer provide that oversight role. Up to $900 million will go into that land and water conservation fund every year, uh, and agencies will have $360 million that they are able to spend uh, with, with, with virtually no oversight just to buy federal land. And when, when the front half of the bill of the Great American Outdoors Act says uh, that they already can't pay for what they have, buying more just doesn't make a lot of sense. So what's behind this? Uh, who's pushing for this? Well, so that's a, that's a good question. So, and I think the, the, the answer is, is in the name, right? Everyone loves the great American outdoors. Everyone loves their national parks and their forests. And uh, here at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, we love our public lands too. We know how important they are to American agriculture. The problem is not necessarily with the underlying policy here, but it's about how it's funded. 
we believe, and we believe that Congress should continue to be engaged in these really important decisions, because ultimately this is about the future of the land and also about the American taxpayers' uh, dollar. People who support this bill uh, don't don't care how it's funded, and and there it, it really lacks foresight because they're not seeing that in five or 10 or 15 years, we're going to deepen this, this deferred maintenance hole. If we can't pay for what we already own, we, we shouldn't be adding to that list. We're talking with Caitlin Glover with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Caitlin, is there any idea of what lands, if this passed, that the government might go after or, or, or to buy? Or is it just the unknown of what land they might go after that's a concern? So that's a really good question. So the land acquisitions are, are, are typically and have typically been in, in the American West. And this is a problem because if you live in the American West, you know that the federal government owns or, or manages um, almost a third of the entire national landscape. In places like Nevada, the federal government owns or manages almost 90% of that land mass in the state. And so when we're looking at additional acquisitions, they're probably going to be in the West uh, and they're, they're going to increase that federal footprint. The other important thing to note here is that when, when the federal government goes to buy land, um, that those land acquisition dollars are, are pretty easily tracked. So over the 55 year history of the Land and Water Conservation Fund, only six times, six times in 55 years has the government spent and, and, and allowed to be spent more than $360 million. The, the big problem here is that even if we don't know specifically which lands are going to be purchased by the federal government uh, forever, um, we do know that they will have more than enough money to, to, to buy whatever they want effectively unchecked. That $360 million every year can buy hundreds of millions of acres. Uh, and and that's, that's not good for, for the landscape, and that's not good for American agriculture. It just seems someone must have an idea of what lands they want to go after. It just, it, I don't know, it seems strange to think, okay, they just want this authority to buy it. Maybe just buy it as they see it, you know, what they want in the future. But it, it, it almost seems like someone has an idea of some, some land already in mind. So the agencies have submitted priority lists in years past, and that goes back to the, to the original way that the fund has been administered. Agencies did send uh, priority lists through that appropriations process to Congress every year, and then Congress would approve those priorities. The problem is that the Land and Water Conservation Fund, uh, through this bill, those, those monies will be deposited and, and usable into perpetuity. There, there is no end date on this. And so even though we have priority lists right now, what those priority lists are going to look like in five or ten years is, is unclear because if, if the agencies have $360 million a year, that, those lists, they'll go through those lists really quickly, and then, uh, then they'll be looking for places to spend money, and that's mm-hmm. uh, another huge concern. So where does this stand right now? So the, the bill is currently being debated on the floor of the Senate. Uh, I am watching the floor of the Senate right now and, and waiting for additional members to speak. Uh, the, 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 this conversation is going to be ongoing through this week, and right now we expect uh, a final vote to, to happen next week. 
this uh, process they're currently in right now in, in debating the bill, there is a, a possibility for uh, members of Congress, for senators to offer amendments to the bill, to change the way the bill is made, to provide some, some oversight, uh, to make sure that these agencies aren't able to buy lands unchecked. And so we're hopeful to see a, a, an amendment process that, that would radically change the bill. Uh, bar any amendments, though, we, we expect a vote on final passage early next week. So if for, for your listeners, talking to their, their members of Congress and their, their senators, that's incredibly important. Telling them to vote no, is now is the right time to do it. Yeah, if this is an issue people are concerned about, it's also something you need to really speak up on because in times like these with all the other things going on, it's these kind of things that can uh, you know kind of go through unnoticed almost by people. No, you're exactly right. And, and with a name like the Great American Outdoors Act, it's it, it, you know, people who, who haven't looked at the bill or, or don't know the long history of land acquisition, people would say, sure, we love the Great American Outdoors. We want our, our members of Congress to protect our open spaces. Uh, I'm from Wyoming, and, and Yellowstone uh, was our, our first national park. I love Yellowstone. We, we want more places, more special places like Yellowstone. But in practice, what what we're doing is 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 sentencing these landscapes to a poorly managed future, and and ultimately the government uh, is is going to own a significant portion of the country. They already own a third of it, Mike, and 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 so owning more of it is is not the right answer. These kind of things can slip under the radar, and we want to make sure that doesn't happen. So this is uh, being debated in the Senate. Is there any companion legislation over on the House side? Yeah, so there there are. Few different pieces. So I said at the beginning here that this is just the latest uh, combination of the bills. Over about the last five five years or so, there have been several different bills to address deferred maintenance and the Land and Water Conservation Fund uh, independently. So what would happen if this bill passes the Senate, um, it would go over to the House of Representatives to to be debated. Now, the House has already passed a a different version uh, with with some of the the same details, right? I mean, it's the same framework, but with some different details. The House has already passed a bill like that, and so it's likely that the House could could take up and and potentially pass this bill fairly quickly. Uh, The president has already signaled his support uh, for, for this this program and it's 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 a hard thing to do when you want to create a a strong future for the american outdoors but but you have to make sure that that strong future will will still be strong in in 10 years all right so we'll keep a watch on it i don't know if everyone is how many people are even aware of it so we wanted to call attention to this the great american outdoors act and we'll be watching and uh, stay in touch with you caitlin on this issue thank you so much That's Caitlin Glover, Executive Director of Natural Resources for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We'll keep an eye on that. That'll be a story certainly to watch, see what happens in the Senate over that issue of um, the government acquiring more, more land. Up next, a lot of market information to go over with Arlen Suderman with INTLFC Stone. Stay with us. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And we're joined now by Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for INTL, FC Stone. Arlen, always good to talk with you. The China Watch continues. Everyone 
really focusing on what they buy and, and how much, and are they on pace for phase one or how far behind, what it's going to take for them to reach even, uh, uh, you know, somewhere close to the uh, levels called out, called for in phase one. They are still making some purchases, though, aren't they? Oh, they really are. Uh, latest data I saw as of June the 3rd uh, was that they had purchased around $6.3 billion worth of goods. That means they only have a mere $30.1 million worth of products to go through the rest of the year um, if they're going to hit that $36.5 billion. I, I haven't expected that. I have expected them to get somewhere around a $30 billion. That may be a stretch right now. They have turned much more aggressive as of late, uh, USDA confirming this morning um, that between China and unknown destinations, largely believed to be China over the week ending June 4th, that they bought 62.9 million bushels, and then they came in for another 26.5 million bushels overnight last night. Um, so they are picking up their purchases. This is when they normally start purchasing new crop, um, because, and that's what most of these are is new crop, um, and that, that's because they've largely bought up Brazilian supplies by this point and spend the rest of the summer taking shipment of those purchased supplies and then start really picking up shipments of U.S. soybeans in August and later. Yeah, I think that's an important point that often gets overlooked, people saying, well, they're so far behind. But we knew up till now they were going to be looking to South America, and, and now's the time when I think we really start finding out how serious they are about uh, uh, coming anywhere close to meeting those Phase 1 agreements. Now, do we know anything about or how accurate do we have numbers on where their stocks are, what their needs are, uh, you know, to give us kind of an idea of what they might be doing in the future? Well, they have a tremendous number of soybeans currently on the water from coming from Brazil, and those have started to arrive in their stocks in China right now are, um, and I'm talking about where most of the crushing facilities are right there near the port. Soybeans come into the ports, go into storage, and then into processing. And uh, their supplies at the ports are up about 20% from year-ago levels as those big shipments from Brazil are starting to arrive. So they're already starting to escalate rather rapidly. That's one of my fears is that even the soybeans they have booked for August delivery may get pushed back into September as they simply run out of space to put the beans at the ports because they can't process them fast enough because we're also seeing soy meal supplies really start to back up as well. Yeah, that'll be interesting to watch. You know, a lot of numbers coming out today in the WASDE report, but will more attention now really be focused on weather and, and production here in the U.S. than even those numbers? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, we're getting into that time of year when the funds love to watch the weather. Of course, it doesn't matter quite as much this year. Or said another way, we'd have to have a much bigger weather event to, to really make a difference, especially for corn, considering the big surplus stocks that USDA is forecasting. But a weather event could still alter, meaning, you know, do some meaningful cuts to the balance sheet. And uh, I do think the trade's going to be keeping an eye on whether USDA cuts its old crop soybean export target some more and whether it cuts further its corn ethanol demand um, in the balance sheet. 
Uh, those two things, I think, are subject to cut. But even with that, weather is probably the bigger story. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with INTLFC Stone. And we're starting to, I don't know, it just feels like dry weather concerns are going to start becoming, uh, you know, a bigger topic here. Uh, we've heard meteorologists say it's not going to be a big drought year or anything like that. But there are areas of dryness that seem to be spreading. There are, and uh, this morning's drought monitor continued to expand our areas of drought in uh, uh, areas of Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, and a little bit more in the Dakotas as well. Um, and as we look forward to will that to spread, there's a lot of similarities to this point to 2016. We do have a rapidly developing La Nina, which is cooling of sea surface temperatures in the equatorial Pacific that in and of itself doesn't guarantee us a that dome of doom that really blocks off the moisture from the Midwest and significantly cuts yields. The other area to watch is sea surface temperatures off the west coast of North America. Usually when you go into La Nina, those areas will cool as well, and that helps build a big low pressure over the west, allowing a major blocking ridge over the Midwest. That has not happened yet. Those waters are largely above normal temperatures yet. We have seen some cooling over the last seven days, not significant cooling, a little bit of moderation. But so far, we're not seeing the type of cooling we need. So we get a high-pressure ridge that builds here in the plains. uh, And then over a period of 10 days or so, it breaks down as the front comes through and we get some timely moisture, most at risk of sustaining dryness would be the region that really is Nebraska and Kansas, maybe into South Dakota, perhaps stretching into western Iowa. If we get the cooling off the west coast, then that ridge could expand further to the east, shutting off the Gulf moisture and shutting off more of the Midwest. Certainly, we don't want to see that. We don't want to see a drought. We don't want to see production problems. But if there are, how much thinking back to last year when we had all kinds of problems on the wet side uh it, seemingly with our stocks and where we're at with everything right now it would take quite a reduction to make a significant market move wouldn't it it really would we would need to see um yield reductions of somewhere around 10% or more to really get the market starting to get excited and uh, right now we don't see that. It is possible yet. I think that obviously as we're getting into what the 11th of June now, forecasts are starting to look out the 16 to 16 to 30 day outlook is starting to look into mid July and pollination time. If that were going to have happen, we would need to see those weather trends really starting to shift um, in the next several weeks for the July period. So what? potentially could be if if unless it's something a major major weather problem or just all of a sudden china went on a buying spree if those two don't happen what could cause or bring about a, our market rally of any significance well i'm glad you brought up the possibility of china a buying spree because uh buyers there are still continuing to show interest in in u.s corn particularly in the southern areas it pencils in very nicely although it China is not going to allow its domestic market to get flooded with our cheap corn. It would go into their reserves. That's possible. Ethanol and distillers' grains purchases are very possible as well. 
but so far we're not really seeing any big indications of that. But the funds hold very large net short positions in the corn market. So anything that might spark them covering that. Um, and so that would probably have to take some combination of a significant weather event and or significant Chinese buying. Both are possible. Neither can be um, argued away. Uh, it's something that's a legitimate risk to the market. It's just that thus far we're not seeing any evidence of it, and we'll continue to monitor. We're seeing ethanol demand pick up slowly but picking up improvements over where we were just a few weeks ago how significant will that be towards the corn market uh, it's hard to imagine anytime soon they're going to get right back to the levels they were pre-covid 19 but if they start getting somewhat close how much of a boost does that give uh, it, it's a significant uh, boost. When you talk about demand, and, we're, and we are expecting China to be much more involved here over the last half of the calendar year in the markets, soybeans and perhaps corn and wheat and some of the other commodities as well, even when you have big surplus supplies, if you have demand, it's, it certainly feels better, and the funds tend to take a different approach to it. So it changes how the market responds to it. You have to keep the pipeline flowing. And we are seeing ethanol demand come back faster than anticipated. I still think USDA needs to cut their target a little bit more, um, but we are seeing some signs that in the end it's going to be coming back better than expected, and that's because driving is thus far coming back faster than expected. Um, we're seeing people get out and about just really anxious. We still have almost complete lockdowns in New York and parts of California. But otherwise, we're seeing a lot more people want to get out and drive. And with airfare really being slow, air travel, I should say, being slow to recover, um, a lot more people wanting to drive than fly. That is helping as well. And we actually could see larger ethanol demand next year rather than smaller ethanol demand than the previous year. Hmm, good news there. If that happens, and summer's a key, right? We'll see how much people get out and get moving around this summer. Absolutely. And do we have a significant another wave of coronavirus come back in the fall? That'll be a key as well. Yeah, a lot to watch for sure. Arlen, thank you very much. And we'll be talking soon again. Uh, we'll see about these numbers, WASI numbers today and more of these developments. We'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with INTL FC Stone. Well, the National Corn Growers Association has released a new analysis on uh, Income projections for this year, uh, they're not looking really good as we take a look at a per acre basis. We're going to talk with the first vice president of the National Corn Growers Association, John Linder, will join us to go over those numbers. We'll also get a planting update. He's been working to get uh, his planting done on his farm in Ohio. We'll see where he's at uh, today. That's coming up next here on AOA. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We're joined now by John Linder, first vice president of the National Corn Growers Association. He farms in Ohio. John, thanks for joining us. I understand you're still wrapping up planting. Did, are you done yet? We are. We just finished up uh, soybeans. 
yesterday. Actually, we'll, we've been a little bit of an island here, catching a lot of rain. So we'll actually have just a few acres of uh, corn prevent plant. So another one of those years. Never had that experience before until last year, and two in a row, I, I'm ready for something a little more uh, friendly toward production. I'm sure. What part of Ohio are you in? Central Ohio, about an hour north of Columbus. Yep, we've been talking with Cy Prettyman uh, kind of in that area as well and talking about his challenges of getting uh, planting done this year. Well, hopefully things are going to turn around for you weather-wise, but uh, a new uh, analysis released by the National Corn Growers Association doesn't uh, sound too optimistic about uh, corn prices turning around anytime soon uh, this year. No, you know, that's exactly uh, what we're finding. Uh, I think a lot of farmers feel that in their heart. But so you do a little bit of research, and thanks to University of Illinois and uh, Dr. Gary Snicky, we've been having these conversations because we have a COVID task force. We've, we've engaged uh, University of Illinois on uh, several uh, topics and research, and the finding of uh, uh, an average of roughly $59 an acre loss for the 2019 last year's crop uh you know, it's it's kind of rough because uh, to make an average, somebody's probably over $100 an acre loss. So then going forward, carrying that forward, yes, uh, we really can't if the, the trend continues with uh, demand uh, being influenced by the COVID and trade. Why, there, there is uh, probably an easy case to be made for a couple more up years at least. Yeah, this analysis projecting $59 per acre average revenue decline for the 2019 corn crop and an $89 per acre average revenue decline for this year. And as you said, that also raises concerns for 2021 because it looks like the impacts of COVID-19 will be felt into next year. Absolutely. Uh, You know, we we have that... uh issue with uh, the livestock, you know, huge impacts there and the number one market for corn, right? And so then when you couple that with the the loss of miles driven and the ethanol and Intico products issues, uh, corn's demand is taking a big hit. So that influence, you know, demand destruction, if you will, is weighing heavy on on our markets and every farmer's pocketbook. So as you talk with leaders in Congress about potential future assistance, uh, it's not just going to them and saying, hey, we need more money or we need help, things are tough. It's this kind of analysis where you can show uh, uh, more more accurately, more definitely uh, what those losses are. And I know you're, you're taking that information to leaders of Congress to help them form another assistance package. Yes. In Congress, obviously, they're having these discussions around all industries, and so they know that agriculture is hit hard, uh, without a doubt. But to be able to, to enumerate with some credible research is very impactful on having uh, healthy, constructive conversations. You, you really have to have so, some solid facts to begin a, an impactful conversation. And as they move forward, they need to realize that uh, you know, the current uh, packages don't even meet half the loss that's indicated for uh, for 2019, let alone carrying the year forward. So it doesn't end there, and no one's being made whole. We've got a long ways to go before that would ever happen, and I, 
don't know that we would ever expect to be made 100% whole, but boy, to help stop the bleeding would be uh, absolutely great. Uh, we're marking the one-year anniversary of the president's visit to Iowa and an Iowa ethanol plant uh, here a year later. Things are not good for the ethanol industry, although showing some signs of improvement as of late. But I know you're disappointed that there haven't been more positive developments for the ethanol industry, especially considering the attacks and the the uh, actions by EPA with more small refinery exemptions since that uh, visit a year ago to Iowa. You know, that is that is very true, and that is an uh, area we're always engaged in, obviously. Uh, we have a lot of conversations with uh, the associations for the ethanol industry as, as well as our different states that are very engaged in, in their own states, uh, basically domestic revenue from, from the ethanol industry, and carrying that out for uh, being a solid uh, unified voice for the American farmer is is what we do, and so yeah, we've we've actually had to engage in in being partners on some some lawsuits in in the regard of uh, upholding the law, basically. Uh, and so it, it becomes bewildering. Why why aren't we in a place where we should be when the law says uh, you know this is what's demanded of of the industry or expected of the industry, and so it's kind of awkward to have to participate in this manner, but it's appropriate. And that's where your national corridors are on your behalf. So, John, what are you hearing from uh, your uh, fellow corn growers around the country? We need to find a way to uh, minimize the, the carryout, you know, and we would all would really hope that our industry, our relative uh, uh, consumers of corn, those industries find some, some relief so that we can actually grind corn and not uh, make the piles any bigger. I mean, demand is, is key here. And, uh, yeah, it's our our consumers' corn are hurting. So what are we doing for them and what, what conversations are we participating in to, to assist them as well because they are very key partners. And so farmers really want to know what, what, uh, what can we do. John, good to talk with you. Thanks for taking time. I know you're tired from uh, the long hours getting the planning done. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Have a good day. You too. John Linder from Ohio, first vice president of the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to join us tomorrow here on AOA. We're going to take a look at developing weather patterns for this summer. Hope you'll join us. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks for being with us.